This chapter likely does not depict the worst human atrocity that we have ever heard of. Perhaps the brutality of World Wars I and II owns that dishonor. But it does provide us with a compelling picture of the kind of barbarism that emanates from a society driven by a no-king mindset, by a humanity that has lost all God-given moorings. This is not a fun passage. This is a dark, hard-to-hear, hard-to-preach passage. But it is also true. For it tells us what inevitably comes when people, human beings, reject the one true God who made them. This book has been leading us downward to this point. Verse by verse, chapter by chapter, it has been going lower and lower like a roller coaster ride, it never returns to the high place from whence it started, but only progresses downhill until it reaches the bottom. Oh, to be sure, the momentum occasionally raises up a few feet, and certainly there are some crazy twists and sharp turns along the way, but the end is inevitable and the bottom is reached. This downward trajectory started when Israel, back at the beginning of the book, we're told, did not believe God's promises and chose instead to disobey Him by not removing their enemies from the land. They did not believe God. And as a result, they did not teach their children his ways, nor did they example faithfulness for the next generations. Then, as we have witnessed, they spiraled further down, absorbing the gods of their enemies into their own lifestyle and culture and even their worship, becoming so much like them that it became hard to even tell them apart. They were no longer God's distinct, holy people set apart to be His light to all of the nations, for they became just like the pagans, bringing God's discipline down upon them. And God, as we have seen, mercifully raised up leaders to deliver them from His judgments, warning them of His proper justice and reminding them of His great grace, but they kept advancing away from Him. And as we saw over the last two weeks, they adopted fully a no-king mindset, the philosophy of life that fully rejects God's lordship and instead follows one's own desires. And this led them to a most dishonorable form of worship that, afflict, that afflicted and affected every institution in Israel, including their families and the priesthood and each of the tribes. And now, in these last three chapters of the book, we see them finally sink into a moral abyss. As this one final story unfolds and relates the awful results of rejecting God. 
It begins in chapter 19 where we see that no king living results in societal corruption. And then it goes into chapter 20 where we see that no king living results in inner division and bloodshed even amongst his people. And then finally in chapter 21 as we will see no king living results in a perverted human ethic. Well, in chapter 19, when I read it, it reminds me of the lead-up to World War I. In the 1900s, early 1900s, all of the great world powers, France and Germany and Britain and the Austro-Hungarian Empire and Russia, were all arming themselves to the teeth. New technologies had allowed them to create the most ghastly weapons that had ever been made. And it was almost like these nations at that time were itching to try them out on each other. To take care of old grievances against other nation states. The world stage was set for a colossal conflict and it was only a matter of time before something started the fire. And then... A zealous group of radicals assassinated the Archduke of Austria, and that led to accusations from different nations, and war was declared by one party after another, and then treaty commitments were upheld, and before very long, the whole world was plunged into four bloody years of devastation. Well, in chapter 19, it all starts with a personal event in a private household that morphed into a national crisis affecting every tribe of Israel. Like lighting a match at an ammunition dump, a small domestic event turned into a catastrophe that included terrible bloodshed, painful tribal division, and further acts of awful wickedness. In chapter 19, we clearly see one of the primary victims that comes from adopting a no-king philosophy in one society, women. Women. For like many image bearers in our day, women are viewed by these rebels to God's will as usable and abusable and expendable. What's more, again, similar to our day, the divine construct of human sexuality is degraded by certain characters in chapter 19 who are driven by their dishonorable passions to do what God has declared to be unnatural in his creation. Ultimately, what this chapter demonstrates is a society that has become fully corrupted, and this is the people of God. So this morning... Let us go down into the darkness and let us recognize the abyss that is there and then let us escape to the light of God. Look with me, verses 1 through 15, where we learn of an unnamed Levite, his concubine, and her dad. In verse 1, we see that it's in keeping with the theme of the entire last section beginning in chapter 17. He says, there was no king in Israel not only did they not have an earthly king sitting upon an earthly throne to lead them, but they did not respect their heavenly king who sought to lead them in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Instead, they sought to do whatever seemed right in their own eyes. 
Dale Ralph Davis says of Israel's problem in that day, quote, the problem is not so much with what each man was doing, but with the standard that governed him. Demanding the right to be his own Lord, insisting on following the dictates of his own glands. The problem is not sins, but sin. That declaration of independence, whether stated viciously or politely, which says, yes, I do want to be like God, calling my own shots. The same problem was prevailing in the hearts of the people. Case in point, verse 1 tells us that a Levite, one of the spiritual leaders called out by God to the people of Israel, a Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim. This is not the same Levite as we saw in chapters 17 and 18, though we do see the same worldliness in yet another member of Israel's priestly tribe. This man had a concubine, which likely meant that she was a full legal wife, but she was not his only wife and was not his first wife. Evidently, this Levite, in opposition to God's glorious design for marriage, had developed his own little harem, and this woman was a part of it. She was from Bethlehem in Judah, it says. Once again, not by accident, we see this little town of Bethlehem represented for us in our story. In the town where the favored one, Mary, would one day give birth to the Savior King Jesus, we find another woman who was favored by nobody, really, and who would meet a most awful end. This concubine, for whatever reason, we're not expressly told, was unfaithful to him, and she fled, in verse 2, back to her father's house in Bethlehem. And her husband, the Levite, went after her, and he spoke kindly to her in order to convince her to have her return with him. Well, she brought him into her father's house, and her father, again for reasons that were not really told, joyfully welcomed him. In fact, her father provides us here in the first part of this chapter with a wonderful demonstration of Near Eastern hospitality as he made this Levite, his son-in-law, stay with him for three days where they ate and they drank and they slept. And on the fourth day, even, going beyond the standards for good hospitality, the concubine's father impressed upon the Levite to stay another day. In verse 6, it says, Be pleased to spend the night and let your heart be merry. But on the fifth day, we are told, the Levite decided that the hospitality was enough and he sought to leave, but not until he had again feasted and delayed for most of the day. And that delay that's mentioned here is important for the story. Notice verse 9. And when the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day has waned toward evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here and let your heart be merry, and tomorrow you shall arise in the morning for your journey and go home. So this day had waned, and evening was approaching, so there was little time for this Levite and his concubine and his servant to reach the city and time before they would have to stay the night. But for whatever reason, in verse 10, the Levite departed and arrived at the town of Jebus. Jebus was a city of the Jebusites. 
It was later on overtaken by King David in later years and became the city of David, Jerusalem itself. But at this point, it was under Gentile control. These were Jebusites who lived in this town. And his servant, due to the lateness of the hour, suggested that they pause their journey and stay in Jebus for that night. But in verse 12, his master says, we will not turn aside into the city of foreigners. This is ironic. We do not belong, who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. Essentially, he was declaring his certainty that he would not find hospitality for the night in a Gentile town, but would need to press on toward a good Jewish town to find lodging. In all of his life, he was perhaps never more wrong. With the sun going down in verse 15, they arrived in Gibeah. Gibeah was a city in the region of Benjamin, and its inhabitants were Benjamites. They were of the Jewish tribe of Benjamin. These were brothers under God. And they went and they sat down in the open square of Gibeah, for as it says, no one took them into his house to spend the night. Now we have to pause at that because I need to explain that travel in that day was a whole lot different than travel in our day. When an Israelite traveled, he expected other Israelites in the town in which he entered to put him up for the night. That would have meant lodging and usually a meal for both the man and his traveling party and even his animals. So there were no holiday inns, just Airbnbs. And this hospitality was expected by everyone. In fact, to not provide such hospitality to a visiting Israelite was a great dishonor for that town. It was a shameful thing to not put someone up. Well, in Gibeah, they were dishonorable. And not a single door opened to this man and his traveling party. Well, in verses 16 through 21, we witness the hospitality of an old man from the hill country of Ephraim who is residing there. In verse 16, this man, we are learned, is not a Benjamite like the rest of the town, but an Ephraimite of another tribe of Israel. He was sojourning in Gibeah and had just come in from the fields where evidently he had been working. When the man saw the Levite, his concubine, and his servants sitting in the town square, he said to them in verse 17, where are you going and where do you come from? So he took interest in these travelers. In verse 18, the Levite answered him, but verse 19 is what's very telling. In verse 19, he says, we have straw and feed for our donkeys with bread and wine for me and your female servant and the young man with your servants. There was no lack of anything, he says. What he was essentially telling this old man was, we have food for both us and our animals. We have all that we need. We just need a place to stay. He's pointing out that even though he would not be much bother to anybody, no one would put him up for the night. Again, this is telling. It was a great dishonor for the people of Gibeah. Their dishonor gets worse. Upon hearing this, the old man an Ephraimite, not a Benjamite, a sojourner, but not a citizen of Gibeah, declared peace to him and welcomed the travelers into his home. In verse 20, he says, Peace be to you. I will care for all of your wants, only do not spend the night in the town square. Yes, I emphasize that sentence. I add something to it when I read it because I think a red flag pops up here. 
This old man is quite concerned, it seems, that this Levite and his wife and this servant not spend the night in the open square of this city. He seems to know something about the town. So in verse 21, he provides for them. Now, I want to pause for a moment to make sure you understand what the author of this book is doing in this chapter. If you have read your Bible all the way through, this story perhaps sounds a little bit familiar. For perhaps it sounds like another story in the Bible, and it's actually intended to. In fact, the author of Judges is clearly making a connection between the events of Judges chapter 19 and another incredible narrative in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 19, if you recall, Abraham, the founder of God's people Israel, Abraham, his nephew, a man by the name of Lot, lived in a city known as Sodom, an evil city that performed terrible acts of wickedness. It was so wicked, in fact, that God eventually sent two of his angels to protect and remove Lot and his family from it before he destroyed the whole town and all of its inhabitants and all of that region with fire. Genesis 19 verses 24 and 25 say, The Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. That text in Genesis 19 is an example of the egregious nature of mankind when, his, when their sin is brought to its full fruition and God's response to mankind. And the correlation between that biblical narrative and this biblical narrative is quite incredible. Commentator Daniel Block relates this well when he says, in both stories, a small group of travelers arrive in the city in the evening in both stories, a person who is himself an alien or a sojourner observes the presence of this company. In both stories, the travelers have a mind to spend the night in the open square. In both stories, at the insistence of the host, the travelers agree to spend the night in his house. In both stories, the host and guest share a meal together. In both stories, depraved men of the city surround the house. In both stories, they demand that the host deliver his male guests to them so that they might violate them. In both stories, the host protests this display of wickedness. In both stories, when the protests prove futile, a substitute female is offered and handed over. And in both stories, there are incredible grammatical connections to make it beyond all doubt that what the author of Judges is trying to do is connect the two passages together. What the author of Judges is trying to do here in chapter 19 is equate the people of Gibeah with the people of Sodom. He is masterfully equating God's people, the Israelite, Benjamite people of Gibeah, with the people of Sodom. He is saying, essentially, as bad as Sodom was, so is Gibeah. As rotten as it was in Sodom, so it was in Israel at that time. Dale Ralph Davis again says, as he affirms this, Yes, quote, that's right, it sounds exactly like Genesis 19. It's the Sodom connection. 
Only here you have Sodom in the land of Benjamin. Gibeah is new Sodom. This is the writer's way of accusing the people of God. He shows us that even in Israel, some have plunged into the moral abyss of Sodom and eagerly wallow in its depravity. He's making a very important point. Israel has become pagan. In verses 22 through 26, we see this depravity in its full face. They were in this Ephraimite's home, enjoying themselves, when they heard a loud beating upon the door. A mob was outside, and they said to the old man, in verse 22, Bring out the man who came into your house, that we may know him. Now, if you're unfamiliar with that expression, let me explain. That phrase, that term, know him, is a euphemism. It means they wanted to rape him. The master of the house insisted in verse 23 that they not act so wickedly since this man had come into his house. The Levite was his guest, and he called it vile what they wanted to do to his guest. And it was extremely vile, but so was his concession. In verse 24, the old man, the Ephraimite, he proposed a compromise in order to maintain good hospitality. In verse 24, it says, Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. He declared it outrageous that they would seek the rape of a Levite man, but he was willing to offer up his guest's wife and even his own virgin daughter to these insatiable men of lust. Note his words very carefully in verse 24. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. The whole problem with the people of Israel was that there was no king and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And now with the same language, this daughter's father and the host of this Levite's wife offered both of them up to these depraved men of Gibeah that they might violate them and do what seemed good to them. There are no heroic men in this story. Only rapists and those who offer up women to be raped. In verse 25, the mob would not listen, so the Levite seized his concubine. And that word seized is, is a graphic word. It means to overpower, to grab. And he made her go out to them. The physically strong man who had such physical power overpowered the physically weak woman and he cast her to the wolves. He saved himself from a night of utter humiliation and agony and perhaps even death at the expense of his wife. I could barely read the rest of verse 25, for this woman was physically and sexually tortured by these men all night and was only let go when daylight came. She then came afterwards to the old man's door and fell down. And in verse 27, please note it, it describes even her hands reaching out onto the threshold of the house. Desperate for protection from the men who should have been protecting her, she reached out to them one final time. 
I hope you men realize that you do owe women, all women, a special kind of care and protection. That as men, because you are men, God has made you to be protectors and defenders of women. And never should you be one who abuses them or takes advantage of one of them. We see this primarily in the marriage relationship, but the Bible, I think, clearly implies that all men are to provide this special kind of care and protection for every gal. In Colossians 3.19, Paul says to that church that husbands are to love their wives and not be harsh with them. He singles out husbands because he knows that men with their sinful hearts, when they sin, will take it out on women. And he says, don't do that, you men of God. You are not to be harsh with your wives. In the book of Ephesians, Paul also writes, he says in chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He instructs husbands to see their wives as their own bodies, not to hurt them, not to defile them. He says, he who loves his wife loves himself. And he goes on to say, no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. There's a protection that's there. There's a watch care that's there. And Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Now, gals are stronger than men in a lot of ways. But when it comes to the physique... I think men are stronger. And I think the Bible tells us that here. And he tells husbands, he tells husbands to honor women who are weaker vessels, who have weaker bodies, to watch out for them and to care for them. Well, in Judges 19, this, this text should make every one of us in this room, male and female, all of us collectively gasp. But it should especially make all of us husbands and fathers of daughters and all men collectively gasp. And when we see such abuse as this in this evil world of ours or hear about it in the news, we must both act whenever it's possible and speak up saying, that is evil and we must stand up and stop this. This is the attitude of a man who lives under the king. So in verses 27 through 30, we observe a heartbreaking call to war. And the response by this Levite in verses 27 and 28 just makes our blood boil. The next morning he rose up. Evidently he'd slept okay. He opened the door to go on his way, it says. So he's leaving for home without her. And there she was, surprising him, hands stretched out to him on the threshold. This is good, sorrow-filled writing. His words were, get up. And yes, I'm putting emphasis. Get up. Let us be going. There was no compassion in his words to her. Perhaps now we see why she had abandoned him in the first place. 
and there was no answer back. Evidently, she was already dead. The effects of the abuse had evidently been too much for her. So the Levite, he scooped up her body, he put her on one of the donkeys, and he headed for home. And then, with no tenderness at all towards the woman who was his wife, towards a daughter of the king who was made in the king's image, and with no respect for a human body that God had made, he dismembered her and he sent her in 12 pieces throughout all of Israel. Evidently, he used her body as a message for each of the 12 tribes, letting them know that something ghastly had happened in Israel, telling the tribes to come together to consider what to do. This was a call to war. And in verse 30, we see that this got Israel's attention. It says, all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. My friends, is it any surprise that in the very society where we reside, we also find such corruption? Women are still brutalized today. Pornography is rampant, where women are objectified, trading away their bodies for something as temporary as money, and they're abused by men who only want them for a few short moments and then cast them aside as if they were not loved by an almighty Father God. Sexual assault is more frequent than we know and I think admit today. And it is all too often met by a perspective that quickly doubts victims, giving them little confidence to ever come forward in order to prevent such happenings to happen again. Other, other things are real in our society. Our advertisements and culture have been hypersexualized to the point that you can't even drive down Highway 19 in Pasco County, Florida, without wondering what woman is being abused to the left in that building over there, what evil passion is being encouraged in that building to the right over there, and what in the world are my children seeing as we drive by it all? Today, today innocent lives are devalued and they are cast aside Unborn children are treated not as image bearers of their maker, but as problems that can be solved through a simple medical procedure. Weak people, the disabled and the cognitively impaired and the mentally ill and the homeless and the drug addicted are often left ignored or scorned, left to the side. And what's more, violence has become white noise around us. It does for me sometimes. It's just become so common that it just fades into the background. Of course the Tampa Bay Times is going to tell me about some ghastly thing done by some murderous person or a dad with his daughter at a bridge. Because it always does every time you open up the app. And we become numb to the killings and the school shootings and every other bloody act around us. Or we just simply decide to tune it all out, pretending it doesn't exist at all. And along with all of this, human sexuality has been reformulated today after the kind of hearts that we find in Judges 19. If you are on the right side of history, then today you insist that everyone should sleep with whoever they want and however they want and that no one should ever correct them. 
denying the right of the God who made them to define the parameters of his own gift that he has given to them. There is no heavenly king in the hearts and minds of most people around us today, and this has brought consequences in our day too. Sad, dark consequences that aren't fun to talk about and aren't fun to hear about. And so I have three points of application that I want you to take home with you. Number one, we don't have to look further than our own hearts before we find this kind of darkness. Though I doubt the actions of those in this room are as vividly sinful as we see described in chapter 19, our hearts are the same depraved, fallen, enslaved to sin hearts as this Levite in chapter 19, and our self-directed, no-king mindset is the same as these Benjamites in chapter 19. And Scripture makes it plain this is so. In the book of Genesis chapter 6, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man, all men, all women, all days, the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every, every, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. There's a lot of absolutism in that language. Our hearts, evil. And then Paul says in Romans 3, of course, None is righteous, no, not one. By nature and by act, none of us is righteous in God's eyes. As he goes on to say, all of us have turned aside. All of us, all of us are unrighteous. And this means that we must see our own need first. Before we can see and do something about, in God's strength, the need of this world. We've got to own up to and make it a focal point in our lives, the need that we have that has to be filled outside of us. We must see our own need because it is great. We must see the chasm. We must see the abyss that resides inside of our own persons and recognize that it must be cleaned. It must be washed. It must be transformed. It must be redeemed. And we must have no pride when we've made that discovery through God and come to a realization of this truth and believed upon his awesome gift, for we have all of us gone astray. And if it weren't for the grace of God, where would I be? Though I look with sorrow upon the world, I plead with the world to look to Jesus in the same way he's opened up my eyes. So we see our need and we get rid of all pride. And with this, secondly... There is light for this world of darkness. There is a bright light for this dark world. Through all of the gloom, our God has done something. He has met the greatest problem of the world with the perfect wisdom of His grace. In the book of Matthew chapter 4, it says that the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And Jesus says in John chapter 8 verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Light has come into this world when a better 
a better happening in Bethlehem brought about a greater Savior than all of the judges and all of the deliverers in this book that we've read who came about for the purpose of bringing his awesome truth and light and life to people in this world. He has come that you might be saved. He has come that we might be redeemed. He has come that I might be forgiven. He has come for us so that we who are in darkness might see this great light. And my friend, Jesus, who died and rose again to pay the price for your sins, is offering this light to you today. If you have not embraced it, you must repent and believe in Christ and Christ alone. And when you do, the light of the world will come in to the darkness of your heart and expel it. And you will be transformed and forgiven and loved for all eternity. Third, this light shines through God's church. In Judges 19, we see a story that isn't all that far from our society today. This is where Newport Ritchie and Pasco County are going, if they're not somewhat there already. And this is why our community needs a vibrant, growing Riverside and other churches like it to shine light. My friends, we are not playing church in this place. We are pressing against darkness with the light of God's gospel. This is a heavenly work we've been called to do. We take a message, the only message that can save, into a world that has no hope apart from it. And that should make us say that all of those other things that we quibble about must be set to the side, and we must together go with his message. God is carrying out his plan through us. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 to his followers. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Oh, my dear friends, people of Riverside, the church, our church, must go as salt and light to a dark and joyless world. Riverside, our mission is to be a fellowship joyfully committed to gathering for King Jesus, growing in King Jesus, and going with King Jesus. This is our mission. So, go. Go in the name of your king to a no-king world. Stop being apathetic. Recognize his glorious accomplishment and go. Stop the excuses. Recognize gospel power and go. Let go of the fear. Embrace the light that he has offered and provided to the world and go. Press against the darkness with heavenly light. But with that, I must ask you to get a little practical with me. 
to get a little practical, let me give you some suggestions on how you, in case you're thinking, well, that sounds good, that's a little vague, it's a little ambiguous, not sure quite how to do that, I'll wait for God to quote unquote open up a door. Let me tell you that there are doors that are open. They're already open. My friends, you can help Dignity Harbor minister to hard and hurting people. Others have even recently just come alongside that ministry to give it a strong shot in the arm that it might do what it's been doing even better and stronger, and that it might even expand and reach more people. Come help that ministry. See what's going on when families who are in need come on a Wednesday to get food and who can walk out that door with a spiritual food far better than anything inside of a can. Get creative, my friends, with your small groups as to how you might bring light together into a dark place. Pray for mine today as we go up to the park, Sims Park, have a picnic, and try, prayerfully try, to just get to know somebody that we might spread some light. And in yours, find some creative way that you can find some group, some people, some way to bring the light of truth into others' lives. Assist the evangelism ministry of Kevin Menos as he'll be sharing Christ with those who park in our parking lot during the Chasco Festival next weekend. Go up to him and say, what can I do? Even if that simply means bringing food, passing out water, making sure the booth looks spiffy, praying while he's sharing, being there to assist. Consider how to use your hobbies, your free time pleasures for the spiritual betterment of others. I'm not very good at disc golf. There are people in this church who are. And I tell you, it's one of the ways that God opened up a door for me to be able to share with a guy years ago. I was able to share with him a lot. I don't know if he ever came to know Jesus Christ. That was what it brings gospel into his life because of a sport that he loved and I was just learning how to do. Hobbies, things that you spend your pleasure time on, use them for the spiritual betterment of other people. And that means creativity. That means you've got to get intentional. It means you have to take it seriously. If it's books, get in the book club and be the gospel light in the book club. Whatever it might be, even if it's lame like mine or awesome like yours, use it. Get creative. And with this, invite people to come to this place at Easter and to the block party the week after. Opportunities for you to not in a programmatic way, but opportunities for you to be able to invite someone that not only you, but others might be able to build something with them in terms of a relationship that they might see your love and hear the truth and come to know Christ. Let us be faithful that they might hear of freedom from sin and of resurrection from spiritual deadness and that they might see that God has placed a people of light in this very town. Help at a women's pregnancy center, helping women who have been sold a bill of goods by our culture while protecting the innocent ones at the exact same time. And with all of this, befriend, just befriend one neighbor, perhaps somebody who's hurting or in need, and pour into them, even if it takes years for them to see the light. No king living results in societal corruption, but the king's people advance a God-empowered message of light. The darkness, my friends, 
has nothing on us. So let us go. Let's pray. Lord, I love that we know all of the Bible. And I love that all of the Bible is connected. And I'm so appreciative that when you give us passages that are so hard, like what we've read today and heard preached today, that, Lord, you connect it to the work of your Son. On the road to Emmaus, he showed his friends through the Scriptures all things concerning himself. This darkness in Judges 19 concerns Jesus. It's about Jesus because it shows us the void, the dark abyss that can only be filled by Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that even in the darkness we would see his light. And I pray, Lord, that you would make this church to be a people of kingdom goers, that we would go in the name of our glorious king, that we would spread his message of light, that you might be praised. In his name we pray.